0: Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Fully Automated and Occupy IR Theory Podcast. Today, we are back with part two of our episode on situationism, and we are resuming our conversation with Jim Calder and Charlie Umland, who were our guests for part one. Now. As you might remember, in the last episode we were trying to cover some of the basic questions in terms of situationist theory. Uh, We were interested in their their broader critique of capitalist modernity. In today's episode, however, we're turning more to some specific issues concerning their uh, position on strategy and how the situationists engaged in the wider world. And we think this is a, a timely episode coming to you as it is right in the middle of the 50th anniversary of the student revolt in Paris in May 1968, an event uh, with which the situationists are often associated, sometimes even being seen as among the key standard bearers of the intellectual values of that moment. So, uh, for those unfamiliar, uh, the early weeks of May 1968 saw a major wave of student actions in Paris uh, protesting the closure, and police invasions of university campuses at Nanterre and the Sorbonne. Uh, On Tuesday, May 14th, the workers' movement nationally came out and joined the students. A number of worker occupations uh, began of workplaces, including uh, the Sud aviation plant near Nantes, and uh, at a Renault factory uh, in Rouen. By May 16th, France was in the grip of what can only be called a, a general strike. Uh, The workers had occupied close to 50 factories, and hundreds of thousands of workers were out on strike across the country. Uh, By the end of the following week, 10 million workers were on strike, a figure which amounted to approximately two-thirds of the entire French workforce. So it's no surprise, of course, that uh, just as with the 100th year anniversary of the Russian revolution last October, uh, that the 50th anniversary of the May 68 events is going to be a big topic of discussion for the left. Um, And you can see that already. uh, The latest issue of Jacobin magazine has come out, but there's a great piece uh, in there by uh, Jonah Birch specifically on the Paris uprising called How Beautiful It Was. And you can uh, see uh, Birch in this uh, piece make an argument that uh, although de Gaulle uh, was eventually able to restore order and the movement eventually collapsed into infighting, I quote, even now, May 68 remains a potent political symbol of the left's hopes for a mass movement to challenge capitalism. Nowhere else in the Western world over the past half century was such a threat to capitalism posed. Now, listeners might want to check out Birch's piece. I think it's a great primer for anyone who wants a bit more background on the May 68 moment in France. He has a really interesting discussion of the economic and social factors in France at the time and the extent to which those factors might have served as triggers of the student uprising. Uh, But what's interesting about Birch's account is that it mentions the situationists only once and then only really as a way of sort of flagging An incorrect way of remembering May 68. Birch cites the slogans and art terrorism of the situationists as if by way of ascribing to them a merely horizontalist politics or a politics of everyday life. Uh, Similarly, in the latest episode of the podcast, Alpha Bunga, Bunga, uh, which is a great show, actually. I think people should really listen to that. There's a lot of good stuff that that, that happens there. But on the latest episode, uh, just dropped a couple of days ago, Catherine Liu. Uh, discusses May 68 as nothing more than a sensational arrival of a performative and campus-based politics of everyday life, a, a kind of a harbinger or a prefiguration, if you will, of the paradoxically vanguard politics of today's campus left, and ultimately a politics that is highly compatible with neoliberal managerialism. In one quote uh, from the podcast, uh, which stood out to me, and and listeners should definitely check this out for themselves, I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, When you have this very elite group of students, Liu says, uh, who see themselves as extremely important and their colleagues in the media as also striking against these traditionalists, the Gaullists, the right wing, the fascists, the transformation of everyday life gets elevated uh, to the height of Hegelian world historical significance. That's a great quote. Um, I think, uh, as Lou says, while it's a good thing for ordinary people to become aware of their political agency, it's not necessarily a good thing when people don't see that agency as connected to real material and social relations that condition their lives. So in, in just a couple of minutes time, uh, you're going to be hearing part two of the conversation between Jim, Charlie and myself on Situationism. And I think you'll find our conversation interesting, uh, not least because I think we try to proceed in a way that's actually quite sensitive to the critiques uh, of Birch and of Liu, implicit and otherwise, on the hazards of a politics of everyday life. But what I think you'll hear as well in the following is an effort on our part to try to create a little bit of space uh, between this kind of contemporary narrative of disappointment in 68 and you know an appropriate critique of the naive lionization of campus politics which may have sort of found its genealogical origins in that moment um, and something else which I guess we can only really describe as a as a kind of a materialism of the situationists. Uh, last week we argued that one of the reasons the situationists could not be merely written off as naive postmodernists was because of their commitment to the concept of separation or alienation, if you will, which was a problem not just in capitalism, but in any system of production where workers would not have direct control um, over the rationalities and systems of production that govern their lives. And it is in this focus on the worker, uh, we argue, that situationism is still very much a Marxist project. And we ended up last week, uh, we concluded the episode um, on the question of strategy and the call of the Situationists for a radical break uh, with the order of separation. And today in, in part two of the episode, you're going to hear Charlie and Jim and myself pursue this line of thinking further as we look at the situationists as, as activists, uh, as we look at their views on the student uprising um, in May 68. Uh, we're going to look at some of the tensions in the situationist praxis at the time, uh, some of the complications, some of the contradictions. On the one hand, uh, you know, they were clearly trying not to establish themselves as any kind of intellectual vanguard, but on the other, uh, perhaps simply because of their own personalities uh behaving sometimes in ways that suggested something much more like a stalinist approach and and we'll also look i think importantly that this gets overlooked i think too much um we'll look at their attitudes towards other events in 1968 eight two, such as the soviet invasion of czechoslovakia um Finally, at the end of the episode, for a bit of fun, we're going to talk about what, if anything, Guy Debord might have had to say about someone like Jordan Peterson. Um, I'll be posting links to a number of the readings addressed in both parts of the episode um, on the blog. Uh, That's www.occupyirtheory.info. And uh, if you want to reach out to us, you can do so on Twitter. There we're at occupyirtheory. And, uh, well, here's the lads. And uh, just quickly, once again, thank you to uh, Darren Latanik for for producing this episode. So let's talk about a moment then maybe where that radical break actually did for them take place. Charlie, just a minute ago, you were talking about them trying to clarify things in the mid-60s. But by the late 60s, of course, you know, the moment had come from their point of view, right? So this is obviously... Uh, a moment where we, we we can reflect on what they write in Situationist 12, which is written in 1969, but it's very much a retrospective focused on mm-hmm. the yeah. events of 68, where obviously a lot happens, but most of it's centered on Paris. Um, so you guys are quite familiar with the background on this. The Situationists believe that they themselves, of course, were part of the revolutionary moment, that they, in terms of their writings, in terms of their actions, practice, right. if you will, had so, had an impact on this. So,
1: so, so Vera James' book... And DeBoer's book both came out in sixty-seven, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and they were very, uh,
2: hugely popular. And they Six were also, months before yeah. the events of, and they May also 68. Uh, participated in some of the demonstrations or, or some of the meetings and things like that. But, but I think their involvement in the sixty-eight is kind of interesting because yeah. they make a they put a lot in those, and you know everyone should read that. What's the, what's the title of that? That May sixty-eight, May sixty-eight, yeah, in the Situations International Journal um you know they take they take pains to sort of describe how they acted and how the reasons in the reasons that they acted the way they did there and a lot of that, you know i think i think that kind of the biggest part of that is that they participated in may 68 very much in a way of not trying to be situationists in may 68 uh they thought the relationship was that the situationists had seen things their critique of society was sort of cogent enough that they were able to sort of predict that something like this might happen. Yeah. So when they did, when it did start to happen, you know, they sort of involved themselves. But but again, the the key for them to '68 is that they involve they try to involve themselves as as workers or as proletariat. Maybe not workers, but. Is sort of the proletariat class, and it was it, right not,
1: it, not it was, leaders of the revolution, yeah, but just participants, yeah. right? And,
2: and in fact, that's their critique of all these things. Is they like when May '68 comes off, all the little you know, Marxist Sax, the Maoists, the the Stalinists, the um, <laughs> Trots Trotskyists, <Yeah>, sure. <laughs> like yeah, of course, right? They're always hanging around. Um, come in, and they ended up being very counterproductive because they brought with them all this sort of organizational baggage, all this, mm-hmm. and so the situation is May 68 is like, and they said they, they sort of knew the chances of exceeding were pretty small, but but to them the whole point was this could be that radical break. This right. could be that moment, and, and, so and so, in that moment, you don't connect yourself back to these old groups. You don't start thinking about 1917 or something, like you you have to be in the moment as a person, as revolting, as a non-separated entity. And that sort of, and that's why, like I said, sometimes it sounds like maybe pretentious or something. They're like, we're not like situationists, like you can't define us as this group, but this is exactly what they're talking about. They're like, you have to approach that situation as a full human. And that's what was gonna be the revolutionary aspect of it. And so, and they actually say a lot of the workers almost did and the things that held, held the workers back were things like unions, things like political parties things like the Maoists, uh, you know whatever so
1: you got you, you got to imagine if you're a situationist in May 68 you're thinking like okay finally now we can stop being situationists mm-hmm. because this is it right like they they don't they're not they don't see the revolution as everyone adopts situationism or mm-hmm. whatever as their as their as their political identity and then hmm. goes on to create the situationist you know,
2: utopia yeah, there's beyond no there is it, there is work, no right. there is no
1: situationism post revolution. It ends immediately mm-hmm. because uh, and and this is explicit in their writing mm-hmm. in the writing like the this is the, one of maybe the most fundamental things for how they view or revolutionary organizations that are that are sort of correct mm-hmm. in their praxis is that is that they don't exist in a <laughs> they don't exist in the post revolutionary world. Mm-hmm. The new world that is made is is made is made by the workers themselves, not, not by, um, mm-hmm. some some
2: a piddly in, little in, revolutionary organization in, trying to in, guide things. In a Maybe. practical way, they talk about like the the fact how these different organizations, especially unions and stuff like, like, um, reduce communication between different sects of workers, things like that. Um, you know, so it, and that's that's you know this is separation again. So these, these little things <laughs> These things are just It's just separation Is You know, you you were supposed to lose that And then some people sort of did In May 68, you know, they were all sort of A, a mass, and, the, and you have things like And this is, I think May 68's Interesting too, sorry to keep going on but Yeah, yeah, like, um, go on Because sometimes you read this and, and they're against specialization and things like that And you're like, well, how would sort of society work If we didn't have any sort of specialists, right It's like, am I going to like I'm gonna have me over to like you know do a get, little nuclear physics yeah right or like yeah like uh, diagnose how you're cold or something you know like um it's not gonna work but but you see things like um printers were printing printing um you know leaflets material for 68 um and they were doing that sort of as workers as their skill so it's like it's not like they were like no the printer shouldn't be printing this everyone should be working on it mm. you know but you you sort of you sort of can can work with the things you're specialized at but but the printers never you know did this as a separate organization or as um uh, you yeah. know they were just they were just doing it they were they were just yeah using their skills they just, to do it they, and, just knew how, they just knew how they to, just right. knew how so so it's not and, but from their perspective they weren't acting like sort of as printers they were acting as people who knew how to do this useful thing um Let's, uh, I want to ask you guys a
0: question here. Um, so what are maybe the, the unspoken costs of this commitment to a non-specialist world? Okay, um, yeah. You know, uh, we've had in recent years, uh, uh, certainly following the Occupy movement, folks like Jody Dean um, writing uh, fairly good critiques of the, uh, you know, horizontalist aspirations and maybe even perhaps naivety of uh, the Occupy movement um, in, in this sort of idea that, uh, you know, we, we're going to be able to do it all ourselves mm-hmm. or we're going to be able to do it without any sort of vertical integration whatsoever. Do you guys think that there's a maybe an, an, an overblowing of this point here? Like that uh, that somehow that, that maybe a little bit of verticality might be a good thing? I mean, we still obviously live in a world of capitalism. We still need to... Address the fact that most of the powers that confront us are vertically integrated, and that gives them a tremendous amount of longevity It, it specifically gives them memory right. um you know and horizontalism is not good at that
2: yeah, I think that's one of the things i I struggle with the most about these mm-hmm. these readings to be honest like i I agree with it on a level um and I will say that I think when the reason so you know gita board is is notorious probably unreasonably (laughs) so um or people's people's like sorry people's ideas about this are are maybe a little overblown for like purging the group type thing right and i think that's why you have some people who
0: like but isn't that a hypocrisy then in a sense because like you're saying that he's sort of intuitively still
2: a stalinist almost you know i mean i I think it's that's a a,
0: critique that's been leveled against
2: him. yeah they they respond to it pretty directly um, and again, a lot of their ideas about this is is having the idea of like this is our critique. If you're not part of this critique, like we're not associating with you. Yeah, but it's um, you know it's it's kind of bizarre mean...
0: to like on the one hand to, to to sort of like in your theory to say one thing and then in your well, actual I, actions to I, to, I, to live another. Oh,
1: well, I actually disagree. Okay. Uh, uh Because I think that remember the the, the situationists or you know uh, they they weren't they weren't. Uh, coming coming to this saying like, oh, we're the only ones that understand Marx. We're the only mm-hmm. ones that understand capitalism. We're the un- only mm-hmm. ones that understand the spectacle. Right? They're saying like, look, there's a massive drought of theory. We have
2: mm-hmm.
1: we have we have practice coming uh coming from everywhere, right? But it's completely unorganized. We don't understand how to how to really connect. This this frustration, this anxiety, this mm-hmm. this uh, this feeling that that like my life's not my own, things aren't mm-hmm. right. Like we know this 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 uh, sort of crisis state mm-hmm. that we all live in, right? Um, uh, but there's a problem with connecting that to real revolutionary potential, right? So so for them, it's not it's not that it's not that they're the ones that understood. They're the experts in revolution. They have the expertise in revolution, and you don't. So you have to listen to them. It's that like, if if you're not part of our of the theoretical, the critique critique that we're working on. If you if you're not part of it, then 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 uh, you're not part of it. Then you're just then you then you just want to be part of our movement because you think it's going to get you famous, an artist. Mm-hmm. You think it's going to get mm-hmm. you uh, pers- personal power or gratification mm-hmm. in some way.
2: I was hoping to push back a little, too, in saying, like, the, you know, like, oh, is it hypocritical of them to purge people when they're so, like, you know, um, sort of horizontalist or something. Um, that's Bookchin's critique of them yeah. as well. He, he throws that in. Yeah, uh, they're good. Uh, he doesn't like it at all. Yeah. Um, they They answer that in a few pieces, and again, one of their things is and I think maybe this is an interesting distinction their sort of idea about liberation or, or they don't really use the term liberation, maybe they do um freedom you know is sort of becoming it's it very much starts yeah be- bec- so people be- becoming people think of, yeah people think of them as sort of like I've heard them called like libertarian communists or socialist or something libertarian communist or something mm-hmm. and I think that's a little misguided because. I don't think that their critique starts in sort of a liberal liberal way. It doesn't start from individual rights and moving out. Um, it starts with, from their view, the the workings of history, and then sort of moves in. You know, people are obviously part of that. So, you know, to them, it's 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 sort of someone doesn't agree or something, whatever. It that's whatever. The issue is there's a you know, the the workings of history are real and objective, and so you follow the critique with them, or you don't, it's not about you as a person. Okay, yeah. There's no rights, you know, you don't get rights to be in the situation as group or not. Like, it's not about being in a group, it's not about being that, it's about understanding the process of history, and trying to, um, you know, Figure out ways to sort of insert yourself into that history, to take control of history, or take right? control make, of history, and that doesn't mean being a situationist, right? It's not like the Bolsheviks; like it's not like you become part of the Bolsheviks and you take the power or something like that. Like, mm. and then the Bolsheviks are in power. The situations don't operate that way. So, um, yeah, yeah. For, forgive me, but it's like it's not about being. Um,
1: it's about moving from being a subject of history to mm-hmm. being the subject mm-hmm. of
0: history. Is that? That's not a bad way to put it. Actually. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, yeah.
2: It's about so, which is a deep reading of Marx, right? Yeah, it, definitely. It, and even so, hay- so
0: on this note, then I have a question. Um, I think part of their analysis of the '68 moment is uh, our turns on rather the sense that the working class itself has changed its nature. And um, I mean, I guess I think, in a sense, here they're prefiguring what we would sort of read today, maybe in folks more like Hart and Negri, their commentaries on the rise of the immaterial worker, the the mm-hmm. the, the, the data center worker, the the technologically adapt worker, right? Um, and its significance for the possibility of democratic revolution today. Um, they, the Situationists, talk about the realization. Uh, that we are in a world of spectacular abundance, so to speak, right? But one that still, to go back to that word we used earlier, of a a world still of augmented privation, because we aren't really being given a choice or a say in what is being produced, right? Right. So the problem with consumerism in this sense then isn't that it offers us a lot of cheap material goods, while brainwashing us somehow, it's a point I've made earlier on. The problem instead is, is that we are locked into these sort of trifling joys that are being handed mm. down to us by the system. We could have so much more. You know, we were promised mm. by now flying cars, mm-hmm. a la Blade Runner, but you know they still haven't arrived. So so where are they? Um, they talk about the uh, the main movement as essentially not being a student movement, but actually being, and I, and I quote that, you know, a movement of workers that found themselves disguised as students. And I right. f- think that's s- incredibly profound. You know, the, 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 uh, they talk about uh, the reassuring imagery of the labor unions and the spectacular news. The May movement, they say, was not some political theory looking for workers to carry it out. It was the acting proletariat mm-hmm. seeking its theoretical consciousness. Yeah. Is there a sense then that that this moment isn't just that the spectacle uh, hasn't just sort of arrived upon us, but it's actually I- I- emerging in a kind of a sort of an odd dance
2: with the changing nature of the proletariat itself? Well, of course, because the spectacle is again, it's always been continuously sorry, always been continuously reproduced, right? Like it's a, a sort of active thing. So, any situation where the working class is changing, and the working class comes to, like in May '68, they come to sort of a new understanding of themselves. It, you know, it's, it's certainly that's because we're all part of it. That that can have an effect. Does that make sense? No. Okay. Well, forget it then. <laughs> <laughs> Cut that out. There we're going to edit that out. Edit that out. <laughs> Leave it in. Leave it in. Leave it in. Leave it in.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Jim Calder, take two. Uh, <laughs> <got it. laughs> Go ahead, Charlie. Uh, You remind me of the question The Again, question was That there was is an analysis of the change Nature of the working class right, that's okay. going on here I and, got it And so you know while we're poo-pooing on the Maoists And the Stalinists and all the rest yeah. Something else that's going on here is That history itself has Changed The proletarian element In the equation Right. It's much more active
1: Yeah yeah well I mean I think honestly, it seems like these days, if if, uh, things keep going the way they're going now, the proletariat, uh, the universal class, right, isn't going to be people struggling in factories. It's going to be people that are just trying to find some kind of meaningful job, right? Or work at all, even. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, not to be predicting dystopia in our future or something, but I I mean, I think uh, you can't turn on the your local, national public radio station these days without hearing stories about like oh, what are we going to do about automation, how are we going to get jobs? Automation is going to take all our jobs, right? So I think um, it's it it, and I think for the situationist, like leisure time is as problematic as as uh, as work time. Yeah, like the the I, I your, will... your, the the this 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 pressure to perform leisure in your life. Is as strong as this requirement that that you that you have to you know work to buy your daily bread, right? I think uh, they would definitely include like people that don't work, people that are out of work, mm-hmm. people that can't, fi- can't find a job. Is as as the as the proletarian too? These people are also exploited in a sense mm-hmm. because they're trapped in this sort of state where they sort of like have nothing and and the, and there's no way to get anything, right? Like you you have like you have to be a wage laborer to to be able to afford to have a house, have a you know food, all these things. Like you have no options, right? We all know this from from Marx. So like what do you do? Like this is a problem Marx never thought about, I think. What do you do when like literally jobs are disappearing to automation? And 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 you can see everyone's being forced into the service sector right now. Like by by this problem. We get off our uh we get off our jobs as 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 waiters and waitresses and then we go to the restaurant and have somebody else wait on us and and on and on and on um <laughs> but i think like that i mean i think that's even in in danger these days people are going to end up being uh you know your real the real revolutionary class might end up being people that even can't find meaningful work at all hmm. or are forced into this sort of like Absolutely abysmal working conditions, by the fact that there
2: really are no other options. But it would also be the people who do have alienating jobs and things yeah. like that. Like yeah. Yeah. Oh no, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to cut yeah. them
1: out. I'm just trying to add these other people to.
2: No, absolutely. It, their their vision of the proletariat is very encompassing, um, to the point sometimes, one thing I've actually had trouble reading it is like finding where the proletariat ends. Uh, mm-hmm. In the situations Because yeah. like, it's kind of like This stuff affects everyone And maybe they said in some ways Everyone sort of is um, mm-mm. Mm-mm. I don't think that's <laughs> right Yeah I, I, They they don't explicitly talk about Well, that's not true Sometimes they do I mean, I, mean, I think they talks antag- about owners And things class like that
1: Class antagonism is Doesn't go away Just because
2: No, it doesn't um, But it will just suffice to say That their their version of the proletariat Is very large mm-hmm. um, I would say that In and leading up to May 68 what they would have said was they were just simply reading the consequences of this alienation and knowing that something like this was at least possible and then when it happened they were sort of vindicated to a certain way because many people didn't didn't think this even something like May 68 was possible mm-hmm. you know so they um but things weren't that bad in France at the time either it wasn't not yeah, not in the normal standards, right? Right, not, not, not in the standards not, I'm sorry, of like things weren't that bad. Yeah, at, not in the standards the we... like people were homeless all the time. It wasn't like the Great Depression or right, something. Right, right, yeah. that's what I mean. Thank um, you. They were simply saying, and, and I think that's one of the reasons that people thought like like there's going to be some weird revolt, you know, your alienation stuff you're talking about is just like whatever, it's theory or something. But so when May Sixty Eight happened, they're like, no, this alienation, this separation, from they're real. And people are expressing exactly that, and I think that's that's. So I don't. I guess get back to your question. I don't know if the working class like, totally changed or anything. But but I think in leading up to '68, they were sort of reading the writing on the wall that the the levels of separation and alienation were were leading to some sort of uh, serious discontent that had potentiality to um, turn into something of a revolt. So interestingly, the same figure, the same
0: kind of new emerging proletarian subject doesn't just exist in France at that moment. There's, uh, in the same issue, Situation is 12, um, a very seriously biting critique of the Prague Spring. Right. Um, Of course, it addresses the events surrounding the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia in August 1968. And the critique here ostensibly... Um, you know, on the surface has very little to do with what you would think situationists are intending to talk about, yeah. which is capitalism, and much more to do with uh, a, su- a surprising subject of analysis for them, which is the Soviet bureaucracy. Um
2: I don't want to get too much in the weeds think that's here, surprising. but I don't think I, it's surprising. I just want to push so? back on that a little bit. Okay, they talk ahead. about that a lot. Okay. Um and this has to do with um you know, from, from their critiques of Maoists in France to the critique of the Soviet Union, they, they, mm-hmm. they definitely believe that the Soviet Union is operating on just a sort of worse form of capitalism, like, and worse in the way that it's just not as good at doing what it's yeah. trying to do as capitalism
1: is. It, Debord calls it um, the concentrated spectacle. Yeah. As a por- as opposed to the diffused spectacle, yeah. which would be sort of what it's like in France or the United States or something.
2: But, but Nick, I guess the point you bring is, like, yeah, no one talks about that when mm-hmm. you talk about Debord, you know? Mm-hmm. Like it's always about, like, American media or, or French media, whatever, Western media, Um but let's, um, if I could just offer a quote from this piece because
0: I think it sort of um, concentrates the point. Um, A society is not transformed by changing its political apparatus, but by overthrowing it top to bottom. People thus came to the point of criticizing the Bolshevik conception of the party. Again, this is Czechoslovakia, 1968. People came to the point of criticizing the Bolshevik conception of the party as leader of the working class and to demanding an autonomous organization of the proletariat, which would spell a rapid death for the bureaucracy, this is because for the bureaucracy, the proletariat must exist only as an imaginary force. The bureaucracy reduces it, or tries to reduce it, to the point of being an appearance. But it wants this appearance to exist and to believe in its own existence. Wherever it has seized the state and the economy, wherever the general interest of the state becomes an interest, a part, and consequently a real interest, the bureaucracy enters into conflict with the proletariat, just as every consequence conflicts with the bureaucracy's own presuppositions. Right. Um, this is a very a good broad point. definition yeah. of the proletariat here altogether, no?
1: Absolutely. Um, I, I, okay, can I can I say why do you think it's so uh, extensively broad?
0: Well, I mean, I, there's a whole tradition of leftist thinking that would assume that the party...
1: Oh, is, part, is the proletariat is is of the, proletariat, of the proletariat, proletariat, the party, is, right. Yeah. Okay, that's so... Well, doesn't it seem like it's a narrower reading, then? Like, we don't include the party bureaucracy and the proletariat in this instance, right? Well, you guys, uh, I... I mean, okay, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be contrarian. No, 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 no. No, I, I
0: know I exactly what you're saying. I, I don't take it as contrarian. I I'm, I guess I'm trying to sort of flesh out the extent to which this immaterial worker, this new figure, which obviously is so central to May 68 in Paris, well, is also emerging in the new productive communicative structures of even the Eastern Bloc countries.
1: Oh, absolutely. Right, sure. So, like, um, the thing about uh, the, the, the global and totalizing nature of capitalism is that uh, the rules um, in this sort of post-industrial West, right, the, because of the spectacle, these extend... Everywhere, even places where industrialization um, hasn't fully uh, developed to the point where the where it has in the west right so like even even though um, in a sense like you're still playing by whatever nineteenth century rules in uh, in some places in Africa or Asia or uh, South or Central America, right
0: I don't know. So the background here is that we have in Czechoslovakia right. at this moment the Dubček movement yeah. um, or the reformist impulse in the late 1960s <coughs> which sought on the one hand to, to break with the Soviet economic model while nevertheless arguing that the party structure was still somehow essential to maintaining what was by then obviously a very false promise of a, of a fulfillment of the Leninist uh, sort of um, vertically integrated Soviet structure. Right, all power um, in Soviets. We, well, obviously even but that not, wasn't true. In right, this, no, that's what know, I mean, so, like... Um, so in a critical moment, then, I guess it, it, this this moment of resistance emerges even in Czechoslovakia.
2: Right. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Well, he, they talk about, um, this is, I think, a good quote. It says, uh, The growth of the dictatorship of modern economic production is both extensive and intensive in character. In the least industrialized regions, its presence is already felt in the form of imperialist domination by those areas that lead the world in productivity. In these advanced sectors themselves, so- social space, is continually being blanketed by stratum after stratum of commodities. Um, with the advent of the so-called second industrial revolution, alienated consumption is added to alienated production as an inescapable duty of the masses. So, you're you're seeing this point. Um, I think that's just a quote that explains that this is going on everywhere. So in non-industrialized, because of course non-industrialized countries are still part of our global production, essential part of our global Mm -hmm. production pattern, whether it's through labor or or, um, raw materials or anything. So they don't escape this, if that makes sense. So, Mm -hmm. and this is also true of Eastern Bloc countries where... um, instead of having sort of the liberal democracy, you, that it supposedly represents the people as image, instead in, in somewhere like uh, Eastern Europe, it's gonna be represented by a bureaucracy that is, um, you know, repre- the image of the, of the actual people is represented in the bureaucracy. And there's all sorts of sort of like self telling lies you have to do to like keep making this work. So or this you, is the the party is the
1: proletariat the proletariat yeah, is the party yeah and right? it's
2: the same thing as as we know like our like to to the situation the workers know this right mm-hmm. like this is reality everyone sort of knows this it's like a lie we all sort of just work with and then all of a sudden when it when it starts to unravel you know it can it can be it's the same process as it would be in a liberal democracy it's the same idea of this this sort of image being busted slightly now of course they talk about what happened, which um, in Prague or, or um, other places in Eastern Europe, you have as people sort of start going against the, the bureaucracy, then all of a sudden nationalism takes hold because you have the Soviets right on the border or in the country, depending where. So it, that way, I think they they talk in some of those things, um, some of those readings as instead of it. Becoming this this sort of emancipatory workers movement, like mm-hmm. the the nationalism takes hold instead, and so it, it sort of loses its purpose, and that's why it doesn't like ultimately succeed. And so in, in that it's this... You you're start, talking specifically about like the Prague Spring. Yeah, exactly. And in that instance, you see how the Soviet Union is is just doing you know, it's part and parcel of this whole world system of separation and spectacle. It's totally necessary in this in, in this sense.
0: Jim, isn't there like a moment in that piece where this very uh, indicative, I think, uh, example of the potentiality of this new worker, mm-hmm. um, where, in fact, the Soviets, in anticipation of an invasion from the West had sort of booby-trapped the communicative infrastructure of Czechoslovakia such that there were right. highly decentralized radio stations mm-hmm. and printing presses and things like this mm-hmm. all around the country. And because, because they thought that they, the, they, they the, had, the, the Euro- Europeans were going to... Yeah, uh, they, had, yes. they Western, had thought the, Western, yeah. the, the Americans or the Western Europeans would, would invade. Um, but they'd be able to keep and resisting. The, the mm-hmm. irony was, of course, that the... Soviet Union invades from the east, yeah, and yeah, exactly. and yet finds itself sabotaged by its own mm-hmm. sort of efforts to create an autonomous communicative structure that could have been, you know, directed by this new proletarian figure. I mean, isn't that isn't that kind of the point? Is that yeah, you know absolutely. we see right here, and let's let's not be shy about this. We see right here the potential of this figure. To fulfill the promise of its own self-governance, and right. so it, it does sort of belie this notion of the need, uh, whether it's um, you know left-wing conservatism or right-wing conservatism, the, the 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 idea that people can't govern themselves.
1: Right, and right. of course, and of course, this is this is you know we know from reading the situations they're wholeheartedly against the idea that that people can't govern themselves, and think really the solution to this problem, and this is again like their critique of specialization mm-hmm. isn't so much that uh that that we have specialized knowledge is that if you look at if you look at uh the level of development we're at now like what knowledge is supposedly specialized where where is the knowledge that's so special that we can't understand it once we have access to to this sort of total whatever
0: network of knowledge of knowledge
1: yeah. yeah the, the right. general right. intellect or whatever right. to put it in Marx's sort of words I, so I, yeah I, I,
0: we're we're, we're we're not having this session in, in the week where Stephen Hawking died and uh, you know okay. obviously there's a very <laughs> sort of telling figure there that could respond to all that but I think i take your point that
2: but, wait, I, he, but you do you think Stephen Hawking would yeah.
0: say do you think Stephen Hawking would say that like I don't know
1: wasn't Never that mind. The, Stephen
2: Never mind Hawking's Stephen Hawking thing though was bringing this to the public that's his exactly specialized right. knowledge I mean that's why he's so famous as mm-hmm. much as anything like you know a brief history of time right like uh, mm-hmm. That's like the most pop popular physics book, right? Like mm-hmm. he he thought that people should. Un, in fact, I think he not uh, just understand but care about this. He right? thought wholeheartedly that people needed to understand this and care. I mean, I think that was why Stephen Hawking is such an amazing figure. You know, people people like that. I think are are pushing against the the specialization of knowledge. Yeah. And
0: uh, absolutely, so, absolutely. It, he even said that his dream was that, you know, one day. Uh, school children will be able to sort of like say um, very profound things about quantum physics as if yeah. they were you know an intrinsic part right. of their you know reality. Exactly.
1: And that's not really a crazy idea. It's sort of actually the way that we understand knowledge in general, right? Mm-hmm. That, it, mm-hmm. that that's what it, it like. The knowledge itself is whatever. Let's use it, let's use one of those one of those sort of spectacular cliches that knowledge is power or something like that, mm-hmm. right? All right, so so Darren, our producer. uh remark that he's uh you know he he's not it's not super clear what um what it means uh to be against specialization um or if that's a, a good thing maybe maybe uh, and I think we can all agree that there's there are va- there's value to to specialization um, and specialized knowledge uh, especially incredibly technical knowledge that's hard for uh, people to understand without a lot of uh Background, I, yeah. uh, back, background study and stuff. So, uh, yeah, do you want to respond to? Do you want to? Do you want to yeah, ask, ask? Yeah, that question I guess again?
3: I just wasn't totally clear on that critique by the Situationists and what exactly the, they were getting at with their critique of specialization, because ostensibly to be a specialist in a any field could potentially take years of study, years of experience, years of expertise, and they're also people with those types of expertise could be providing a service that other people can't provide because they have that expertise. And I don't know. Um, I understand, like, a narrowing of your interests to the point where you are you know, um, ignorant of other fields or other ideas, which right. would be a critique. So I think valid that's the critique. first problem, right? I think that's an absolute problem, Or right. if, like, if... You know, for example, you'd say, I'm a car mechanic, I know about cars, I don't care about anything else because this is my expertise and I don't care about anything else. And I think that's a valid critique. But then, on the other hand, certain things, whatever it is, if you're an expert in linguistics, you're an expert in heart surgery, there aren't that many people that can do that. And the level of expertise it takes is, is beyond so many people to be able to. Have that kind of knowledge, I guess
1: Right, and I I think Um, other people kind of critique The social, or kind of like Get this inkling that there's this sort of um, Anarcho-primitivist Sort of piece to The situationist Mm -hmm. Ideas because of this, right? Mm -hmm. But I I don't know um, And I think this is maybe The most challenging part of this To tackle Mm -hmm. Because this uh, idea of Holism as opposed to specialization is so fundamental to their critique and just saying, like, well, they're wrong about specialists is going to undercut the whole I- idea uh, of a lot of parts of their critique, which I think we don't necessarily want to do because we think we kind of agree with some of it. But I think it, it goes back to, all the way back to, like, Marx and Engels and talking about the critique of the, of the division of labor. And, um, and I, I don't think that the critique is against specialized knowledge it's 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 a uh, 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 it's how this sort of injects itself into the social body so that so that um you know under division of labor under specialization you sort of are what your job is right or what your knowledge is right and the and these specializations sort of like have layers of hierarchical power right you know what i mean so like if you're uh if you're a sociologist right you you uh, you might expect you to have a certain author- uh, uh, authority when it comes to understanding how society works, right?
2: In, what, in the what, worst the worst case scenario, you lose sight of of real life, and then the sociological understanding of reality replaces reality, right? For you or for you know people you have power over,
1: right? So I I, I want to say two things, like I would pose a a, a additional a a second question which is like how much special how difficult is it to understand these specialized ideas? How hard is it for people? How much is specialization and the sort of power of specialization built around not the the uh, importance of specializing but just the sort of social structures? Uh, My second point I think
2: it still might be dangerous you know being uh, I I think also, Darren, like when you talk about things like the actual time you spend, like like for instance, in your case, like studying language or something, like the actual time you're spending in that, that's actually happening in real life. That's not about um, that's not actually about a division within language, right? but that's a, a division between the actual life that you've spent. So you have this expertise in something like that. It, it, you're you're. Skills and language are not because you're a student of linguistics. It's because of the work or the the activity you've actually done, which is actually an important distinction, especially with the way the world works. Right. right. So. Um, well, especially when you see there's the there, you see these class like almost like mm-hmm.
1: a, a specialist class and a non-specialist class sort of like developing, mm-hmm. where you see like there's this huge body of the of the working population whose jobs are essentially non-specialized, or mm-hmm. anyone can do them, right? Um, and, of course, those are the jobs that... As much as we talk about STEM and the need for technical jobs, most jobs, rather than being ones that require technical skill, are jobs that don't really require mm-hmm. any specific technical skill.
0: See, I think that's where I would break. You think you I, disagree I, I, I think with that? I, well, I, I mean, I'm not sure what my view is on that, but I think uh, what I see... In both the Prague Spring and the May '68 pieces, are an awareness of a new type of worker that hasn't heretofore existed, right. uh, and this is, I think, That's what I'm talking you know, about. this is, this is, this is, I think, so important to answer your query, Darn, because I think it's not just that we're saying, oh gosh, you know. Um, uh, there's a there's a normative expectation here that everyone should participate in in the minutia of decision making when it comes to, you know, deep structural phenomena of our society, such as like you know the calibration of sewage pipes or whatever. You know, like it's it's it, you know obviously those sorts of questions do require many many years of advanced study, but I think what is being sort of put on the table is. Not just that normative expectation, uh, to whatever extent you want to take it, that's kind of up to the movement at the time, I think. But the the other aspect of this is a recognition that the worker itself, his or herself, has changed, has transformed dramatically um, from the sort of early industrial worker that Karl Marx and you know um, Engels would have would have been preoccupied with. Today we have a worker that is versed in all kinds of coding, whether it's, um, and, and this is, I think, you know, I've talked about Hart and Negri before, um, you know, their their insistence on the notion that the modern worker, the contemporary worker, engages in immaterial labor is important here, right? Whether we're using emotional skills um, or cognitive skills, uh, be it coding or what have you, um, that we're all basically, this is the lie, right? That 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 we are effectively workers who are governing ourselves now like right now the boss is irrelevant now like everyone knows this i think this is the lie that that Mm -hmm. that 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 capitalism somehow still needs the middle manager or the Mm -hmm. boss workers are incredibly self-directed already and so the answer to your question isn't necessarily to sort of like try to figure out oh my god like you know, surely you're saying that everyone has to rise to the bar of being able to make these decisions that require five years of advanced specialized study. Mm -hmm. That's not the, I mean, I I think those questions still will remain well into the future, but it's to recognize sort of on the flip side of that, that ordinary vanilla workers not to sort of sound condescending, but, you know, ordinary workers are actually way more capable today than they used to be. Um, they are way more self-governing than they used to be. Right. Uh, the assembly line has transformed. Mm-hmm. We are no longer engaged in work in that sort of traditional sense where we're just sort of working for Henry Ford, putting one widget in one segment of the assembly line of a Model T Ford car over and over and over again all day long. Right. We are today actually engaged in advanced uh, informatic. Processing, even even modestly capable workers are doing work that is intellectually far more sophisticated than than previous workers would have commanded. So right, because if I, they
1: I also, because if it wasn't intellectually sophisticated, a robot would be doing. Yeah, I I also want to say
2: too. Right.
0: Yeah, I agree.
2: So that separation doesn't. It's thanks, just, Nick. That's a, a, a yeah. much better answer than mine. Yeah. I, I also want to say, too, that separation doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? Like, it, it, it has right. ontological, yeah, yeah. it might have metaphysical, like, implications, but that is still governed by a history where separation was, um, you talked about the situation, like, you know, first created as, as uh, you know, one of the first separations, is like like the priest, right? Like, understanding reality in this religious way. Yep. And then it turns into, um, you know, the, the king or whatever, like, uh, separation's history, is all about exclusion. It's all about power. It's all about inserting power over other people. Um, By saying like I'm the one, yeah, that has access that to this. Exactly, you're the one that has so, to listen to me. Right? So that's that's why um, you know separation is is confusing. But I also think that that they hold out this idea that in a different society, and not just a different society, but really radically breaking with like the foundation of society. Our society we can radically break with it separation becomes something very different and and maybe not even separation anymore and again like i like i point out like the the may 68 like like the printers like we're printing all this stuff they didn't make like they didn't say like everyone should be printing using the printing press you know like they they used that specialized knowledge in, in reality the the point and where they were going into a I think in a good direction from from Situations perspective is is these printers were doing it as workers just like everyone else, and it was just all uh, understood to be part of the same thing. Right, um, and that is what the,
1: sort of an autonomous workers movement is kind of supposed to look like, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Is that is that, is that um, we're all capable of? As Nick said, we can all just do it. We don't mm-hmm. need we don't need somebody to tell us now. Do it. You could just do it. Mm-hmm. Does that, so, Darren, let me ask you: Is Snacky. that um, how does how is that how is that as an answer to your question?
3: Yeah, I agree with the fact that the worker has changed. I think that's a pretty fundamentally important point um, in the context of them writing in the 1960s versus people writing during industrialization, and I think even today that's like even more. Yeah. Um,
1: they almost anticipated. Prescient, yeah. yeah.
3: So, um, you know, oh, and I think that's probably even, even when, even with the factory at the Henry Ford, I get the feeling that people weren't probably just putting one thing into a car. Those people were solving a lot of pretty critical problems with with manufacturing. So, I think that's like a fundamental critique of 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 what Marx and Engels were writing about too. That it. Um,
2: well, look, we, workers
3: have always been solving yeah. more critical problems, I think, and. Um,
2: and I think we all know, as workers, that are the problems we solve at work don't necessarily have to do with our specialized knowledge at work. Like, yeah, exactly. A lot of them are like, can I get along with like you know the jerk coworker or something, mm-hmm. or like like can I get it to a point where like my boss is happy. By the way I act, or something like that's more essential to the functioning yeah. of, of your work. Like sure. sometimes as much as anything, at right? All. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we also probably know
1: workers that were really great at some special field, but still, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but still couldn't get their job done. Yeah, yeah. because they were whatever bad at bad mm-hmm. at personal relationships, mm-hmm. bad at managing their own stress levels, like mm-hmm. whatever, right? And
2: isn't that also the lie of work? Right, like they they expect you to. You know when you're at work it's sort of it really is separate from your whole life and like we've worked you know, worked you know through things like labor movements and stuff we've at least gotten like sick days or like a personal day for some people if you're lucky but like in reality like they expect your your regular life to not even intrude on work like if right. you're late like or something like that and and if you're late to work a lot of times it has nothing to do if you're getting the job done or not it's mm-hmm. just like your your you're regular life in, intruded into the sort of specialized function of, of mm-hmm. um, you know whatever you're doing for work so I, I think that's really the issue it's like reducing um, reducing people to their specializations yeah and I think that's the biggest problem right yeah it, it, reducing reality to these specializations when we know that, that reality is is much more holistic
3: yeah and I think if you like were in some board meeting with like Administrators of some company, they would be reducing their employees into those sort of categories, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's maybe more of the issue that, as opposed to the idea of people being specialized in tasks, I think is important. And um, like you were saying, with with you know public infrastructure or being able to, to complete a heart surgery, you need it takes years of education and experience to complete some of these tasks. I think the issue, I think, is more the alienation in terms of, like, if I'm in a meeting, if I'm with other administrators of a company and I'm boiling down individuals into these compartments of like their tasks and so i mean i think
0: the the other thing to like going back to to marx and and his time and maybe the the, the alleged condescension perhaps to the ignorant worker or whatever like let's not forget you feel that like
1: marx was condescending to workers I don't. no i
0: that's what i'm trying to say oh, okay. is like actually i don't i i think that in fact if anything um it's already there you know the the marx was working and writing in a time where workers had Understood that they needed something called the weekend. They needed a 40-hour working week. You know, those are self-governance decisions that the worker had made. Yeah. And, of course, it's, it's not at all a condescension to the worker to say that even in Marx's own time, they were deeply aware of the kinds of parameters that they would need in their actual working lives to... To, to be able to function. People, you know, it's not yeah, for yeah. nothing that they came together and created those movements to, make, to assert those demands. And it's those demands today that are coming from a more, you know, um, technologically advanced maybe um, context perhaps, but also like, you know, they're, they're deeply aware of the conditions they need to function.
2: I think also, too, I mean, Marx knew about the general intellect, right? Like... Sure.
0: Well, the is. Like,
2: he's very specific that, like... It, it, general intellect's weird to talk about in the, the context of specialization, but that's sort of... What is the opposite of that, exactly, right? Exactly. It's central to this, right? So it's like uh, there is a general general intellect. People people can connect with that. Um, it's important, and it's... Um, you know, it's the way work actually functions. Right. Not necessarily how, how you're sort of It's sort of mapped if you ask, like, your boss or something, you know. So. Yeah, I mean, I'll teach you the secret to
0: making a French omelette.
1: But you could also just (laughs) learn it the way I did. Just look it up on YouTube.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, uh, last question of the night, I think, guys. Um, Surprising sometimes reading various passages in uh, these works. We get to see references to persons who seem very clearly have been reincarnated in the present context. Um, one figure that really comes up that I think is, you know, cannot go without mentioning tonight is uh, Daniel Boorstin. Um, Debord has a fairly savage critique of this figure, and I can't help but think, reading certain passages that he's evoking uh people who circulate in today's uh discussions like Jordan Peterson um when we uh read thesis 199 of the society of the spectacle
2: I think you should start started 98
0: 98 okay yes. um, it's both um <clears throat> Uh, we find uh, a reference to Borston uh, as a person who denounces incitements to wastefulness as absurd or dangerous in a society of economic abundance. And these people do not understand the purpose of waste. It is distinctly ungrateful of them to condemn, in the name of economic rationality, those faithful, albeit irrational, guardians, without whom the power of that same economic rationality would collapse. Daniel Burston, for example, whose book *The Image* uh, describes the spectacular consumption of, cons- of commodities. In America never arrives at a concept of the spectacle because he mistakenly feels able to treat private life like something he calls an honest product, <laughs> as quite independent of what he sees as a disastrous distortion or exaggeration. Um, switching over to Thesis 199, we find an argument that Borsten treats the excesses of a world that has become alien to us as excesses alien to our world. The normal basis of social life to which he refers implicitly uh, when he describes the superficial reign of images in terms of psychological and moral judgments as the product of our, and I quote, ever uh, more extravagant expectations, has no reality at all, however, either in his book or in the historical period in which he lives, because the real human life that Borston evokes is located for him in the past, even in the past of religious passivity, He has no way of comprehending the true depth of society's dependence on images. The truth of that society is nothing less than its negation. (laughs) Right. Um, Jordan Peterson has shadowed this kind of commentary in a certain way. Would you agree?
2: Yeah, definitely. I have in my notes here, which I don't know when I wrote this, but at some point. But I, I always take this as you know, people who who condemn capitalists for being capitalists, who are themselves capitalists, like they they, they are essentially, yeah, condemning people, they have this idea of what they want sort of society to be, and then they condemn people who are are completely part of that society, as if you could sort of separate them out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, you know, Jordan Peterson in a nutshell, right?
1: Well, isn't this like the most idea? Isn't doesn't he have sort of the most idealistic posture of anyone? Right, that that like the problem is that we all just need to whatever. I mean, Nick, you I don't know. I'm not. I don't know that much. Uh, I haven't read anything by Jordan Peterson, but he you know he has this emphasis on whatever clean your room or whatever. We all just need to do a better job being good citizens in society, mm-hmm. and then everything will work out
2: fine. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and this but I think very, like this, okay. Oh, well, I was just say this is like the the, Borsen's a great example, and it's it's still the emphasis of, like you could say "Make America Great" and then read that. It, it's trying to operate on the same level. This imagined past, right? Um, this imagined past that somehow uh, solves the problems we have now, um, and then of course like the the problems they're talking about aren't even really real problems and then like right he talks about the excesses
0: that are alien to our world as if they were somehow like perversions that if we could only manage them or handle them they you know everything would be fine it's the ultimate kind of neoliberal um right uh, pretension
2: well like you said nick the excesses of our world like Where's the excess coming from? I hate to break it to Borsten or Jordan Peterson or whoever, but like our whole world is built on excess. Like that's why the spectacle is a tautology. Like we can't stop producing more and more and more, or like our whole society falls apart. Yeah. So he 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 he, he
0: seems to be sort of emblematic. And I think I may have mentioned this at one of our recent meetings. That that uh, you know, in in a sense, he Borsten and Peterson uh, evoke. Um, Edmund Burke you know, the so-called founding father of conservatism right. who had strident uh, comments um, uh, to make about the advent of capitalism as if it somehow the market, you know, was a perversion because it introduced a moral relativism um, that that, that d- d- unmoored humanity from its authentic structures which were authoritative which were hierarchical um, you know, and, and of course, you know Burke. is renowned for you know talking about the transmission belt of history that that we have uh, a past that somehow the present generation is honor bound to reproduce into the future and, and right. convey into the future. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to me that when you look at uh, um, jordan peterson that that you know he he is a, a paramount sort of exemplar of this idea. That that somehow w- we, if if only we could get back to a society that uh, understood uh, the, the the essential uh, virtue of masculine values and um, <laughs> uh, you know the, the, Sorry, the, the you is, know yeah. the, you know that that we would be okay. But
2: yeah, you know one thing I I want to say. But that never.
0: Recent...
1: But that's the point, right? This never existed, right? There there never was a.
0: Or, or rather, there was, but it was a society at the same time that, in the name of defending that status quo, marginalized, if not enslaved, women, uh, racial minorities, you name it, right? right. You know, so like it's that this sort of like glorious past, in fact, uh, may have existed, but it existed at a tremendous cost. And this is the problem with, um, you know, these figures is that they don't. Really seem to want to tally in the historical equation the the, the costs of their of, of the of these well, they, these I think these epical periods.
2: And imagine a society like a society that wasn't excessive or something like like American society was like really like down home and everyone just like right. they, they almost are trying to invoke like a use value argument. Right. No. No. Yeah. But but I mean I think it's the, not the, real. This, right. This,
1: this argument that capitalism has destroyed traditional ways of life is 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 valid i think it's true right and i'm not i'm not arguing that we should try to go back to some traditional yes, ways of life maybe i am <laughs> <laughs> maybe i am no I'm not um <laughs> no makeup <laughs> yeah but you hear conservatives all the time talking about what happened to the family what happened to this what happened to that right so on one hand you you have all these things that capitalist uh capitalism has sort of like laid waste to or mm-hmm. I mean even made relative, right? Mm-hmm. In, I'm not I'm not arguing for this Bursi's argument. I'm just saying like it is true that, that 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 this stuff is all made relative by capital because uh because commodity production is really all that really you know matters within the context of this system. This this is so, right. so anything that doesn't isn't isn't able to fit into that those parameters, right? Is irrelevant and and outside automatically. At the same time, even Marx and Engels saying, "Look, capitalism is going to create the conditions for this better future for us." Right? So, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I just honestly, I just think you, you whatever you're picturing about the past, you're not, you're not looking at it from the full picture. I, I think you want to like, understand the projecting. Totality. You're
0: projecting. You want to
1: understand the totality of this sort of like conservative, this conservative dream of the past. You have to, like you say, you have to exclude women. You have to exclude minorities. You have to basically make it white guys. You know, everybody knew how to tie a tie. Yeah, yeah. All that. Well, Double Windsor. Yeah,
2: exactly. What I what I want to say and why this is important to me is, and we've talked about this, Nick, like we all like to make fun of like Jordan Peterson. He got in fight with like a ZZEC bot and whatever.
0: I got in trouble with a ZZEC bot.
2: Yeah, right. He, he, Post links to his hard drive, and uh, you know, he's, he has all these really easy he's like low hanging fruit. In some yeah, many
0: ways. he is. He's very much
2: low that's high. why we're talking about him, right? But, but <laughs> we're talking know, about Borsten, though. Oh, my bad. Yeah, <laughs> Borsten, less low, you know. Um, but we are, all, uh, we all enjoy that, and I think there's obviously a place for that, and it's fun. But we also, know, we also sort of, I think, have talked about like, and this especially applies to Trump, I think, mm-hmm. like. These little jokes we have, like... uh, We also have to get serious about it sometimes. Mm -hmm. We have Mm -hmm. to... And, like, I know it sounds silly, like, getting serious about Jordan Peterson, in a way, or Trump or something, but... Yeah, but but he's way wrong, right? The fact is, like, they are, like you were saying, Charlie, like... They are critiquing something that is happening. Like, capitalism has, like, pretty much destroyed the family for many working people in this... um, in this country and throughout the world, and I think that, that many people, you know, it would be nice, like, like to go back to a, to certain things in the past. And I think that that is something that I think we can take seriously. But when they try to pretend that it's because of like personal excess or or some like vaguely described like uh, uh, cultural Marxism or something, yeah. that's where the danger is. That's why they're wrong. You know, the the scary part is when people tap into real. Fears real things, and then they misrepresent them in this way. I think something like *Society of the Spectacle*. You know, you can read that. Um, y- you interpret what we just said about Borston, like within the *Society of the Spectacle*, within all the things they say. And you start actually having a picture of how things really work, and how maybe, like maybe, you can get beyond it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Which is which is important, and and you don't get to that point just like with a. Trump jokes or the right. lobster jokes or something, yeah. as fun as right. they are yeah. and and so I think that's that's why it's important to c- come back and actually analyze these people's ideas in, especially in the context of something like the, side of the Spectacle or Debord you, you, you get some real insight in it Well Well that's it, you did it Jim
0: Jim, Charlie, Darren Thanks very much. It's been a great night. I think we've slayed uh, some dragons here. Uh, I think we've given the listeners a pretty insightful uh, glimpse of a a deeper cut, so to speak, uh, on the situationists that goes beyond uh, what uh, even mainstream liberals in The New York Times would like to represent (laughs) as, as, uh, you know, their contribution in this era of Trumpness.
2: Um, So thank you very much. It's been an honor. Uh, We we should say, too, uh, you know, the Bureau of Public Secrets, Bob Secrets is has all these writings for free. I mean they're really accessible and yeah. someone like Ken Nav has put a ton of work into making them accessible mm-hmm. for people. Yeah. So you know, I don't think we ever do this justice in something like this. So I hope people would, would go and read those um, for themselves. Yeah, they're yeah. good they're great
1: reads and um, talk about talk about an organization that p- produced nothing but Really top-notch theoretical writings. I think yeah. it's great. I'm not it, trying to put them into into some sort of like s- sphere of theoretical writings, <laughs> yeah. but I think like this stuff is is fantastic, and everyone can really get something from it. I think so. it's worth reading. They're fun to
2: read too. Like, uh, I think we tried to kind of like not just go with the good De one-liners or something like that, hmm. because people do that, and I think if you only do that, you misrepresent hmm. the 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 work itself but yeah i mean you you read that you you're often you know it's very enjoyable to to read his writing and stuff and and he really gets after it sometimes it's good writing there's good singers in there and things like that so uh, yeah i really hope people would would just read it just read it
0: definitely all right guys thanks very much thanks (laughs) appreciate you joining me
1: Okay, guys, so. was the part um, where we shit talk one guy or two guys yeah. so, so. <laughs> You have to be more actually open minded about Vorstein
3: and that.
0: Yeah, because otherwise you wouldn't have garlic flavored cheese. <laughs> um. <laughs> Zing. This is a zinger.